Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And welcome back into the Bama on Three show. This is your host once again, Clint Lamb, and I've got Jimmy Stein back joining me. Jimmy, how are you doing this morning, man? Awesome, awesome. Two down, ten to go. What do you mean? Ten. Two, win, two wins down, ten wins to go. See, I should have known that. I thought you were talking about days of the week. I don't know. It's Tuesday. It, it made sense from that perspective. I, How I measure my life. Yeah, well, yeah. And <laughs> so far, so good. I wouldn't say that everybody's thrilled with the Mercer game, but we'll be getting into that in just a second. First of all, I wanted to say we got a mailbag coming out tomorrow. So you can hit me up. You can hit Jimmy up if you want to as well. You can DM him on Twitter. You can get on the, the message boards, the BCS Alabama message boards, and, and drop a question if you want one. We've already got several lined up, but if you want to throw yours in there, whether it be for this one or the next one, we're definitely going to be choosing a few more to add to this one. Um, so, you know, definitely do that. You can hit me up at Clint R. Lamb. Is it QB underscore country? That's right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So you can hit him up on Twitter at QB underscore country. Um, you can hit up BCS Alabama, uh, Bama on three Twitter account, just however you want to get your questions. And we're going to be accumulating all of those, picking the best ones and, and kind of running with it. So we've kind of hit the point of the season where you can ask questions, not just, it's not predictive necessarily. You can still go that route, but it's, it can also be reflective based off of two games. We've seen, you know, not just the starters, but because of the blowouts, we've seen depth guys start to get rotated in a little bit. So however you want to ask it, whatever you want to ask, we're certainly uh, more than willing to, to you know, answer those questions. But, Jimmy, we'll, we'll start with the Mercer game. 48-14, Alabama is now 2-0. and Tell me what were your initial thoughts following, uh, you know, what was, you know, from a score perspective, somewhat impressive, but I think people weren't exactly thrilled with how things went at certain points in the game. No, I mean, Alabama was, you know, it was kind of hard to find a, a betting line on the game, but it was basically 53. And, and Alabama only, you know, win, wins the game by 34. And in, in that sense, it was it was disappointing. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I wish I'd looked at it this way before the game started, Clint, is, you know, you play Miami in the game that everybody looks forward to for nine months. Miami's a big name. Maybe they're not the, the power they once were, but they're still a big name in football. I think it's a big name to the kids who grew up with, with the U, a significant thing, you know. So Miami was a big game in and, and the first game and on ABC television. 
Game three, as we know, the one coming up is is huge. It's the first SEC game. It's a road game at the Swamp. It's a team we played in the SEC championship game a year ago. So I'm saying is Mercer was a sandwich game all along. I mean, after a big game, before a big game, and you're a 50-point favorite, we probably really should have seen it coming that there would be a kind of a flat, ugly performance from Alabama. I mean, no one, I think, should should be expected to be sharp in that scenario, regardless of how, of how, uh, of how the opponent, you know, is talent wise, obviously Mercer doesn't have a single player on their team, uh, that would be offered by Alabama. Uh, you know, Alabama didn't play well, uh, offensively in the first half at all. Uh, I think, uh, they, they punted on the first two possessions. I think three of the first four, uh, everything was just off. Every mistake that could be made on offense was made from Jamison Williams drop to the, uh, I think, seven penalties in the first half. Uh, Bryce was a little off. I think he was as inaccurate as I've seen him. Um, you know, just just a lot of mistakes. Now, the defense was really good. I think that's been overlooked. In the first half, the defense was pretty fantastic. Thir- I think they held Mercer to just 35 yards uh, in the first half, which is unbelievable. And then in the second half, sort of reverse rolls a little bit. I think the offense, I wouldn't necessarily say got into rhythm, but the offense was better in the second half, and and then the defense gave up plays. And I know some of that was with the twos. Sometimes that's a good excuse. I'm not sure it's a good excuse against Mercer because regardless of – I mean, the the threes and and the freshmen should have a lot of success against Mercer. They're an FCS program. So I think it was, you know, know, I use the word yuck. I mean, it it wasn't pretty. Uh, It wasn't uh, exciting. There were a handful of big plays, and some guys did play well. We'll talk about that later. But uh, overall, it was just a little disappointing. In retrospect, though, maybe we should have seen it coming. Well, and and you're absolutely right. As far as the defense looking great in the first half, and and it's interesting because you would think with those depth guys, they knew more than likely they were going to get some opportunities to play in this football game. And you would have thought with the fact they normally are not going to be able to do that, they would have been the the guys who are focused, the guys who are ready to play, you know, at their best, we didn't really see that. It really was the starting defense and those, you know, top guys. And, you know, you had some rotation in there a little bit. It wasn't just the starters. But the guys who were playing in the first half who were considered, you know, co-starters or whatever, that's where you got a lot of quality play. Um, and then offensively, you know, Chris Owens there at tackle, he, he kind of lacks length at the position. He's used to playing on the interior. He's not used to dealing with speed. But him giving up that sack on the first drive of the game on third down – you know, held Alabama to a three and out punt the football. It kind of set the tone for the entire game. And so I thought that was a, a pretty big, you know, significant play, even though it was early. Um, and I'll be curious to see, you know, and in something that you've talked about as well, the veteran experience, you kind of want to rely on that early on in the season as you're getting more comfortable. But as guys get more reps and, you know, continue to work in practice and they start getting a feel for what it's like, you know, doing the little things on a week-in, week-out basis as far as your preparation on Mondays of game week and Tuesdays and, and so on and so forth, you know, I think we'll both be curious to see if, you know, anybody's able to push Chris Owens for that starting job at right tackle. What I found interesting, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, when Chris Owens had to go out of the game uh, after losing his helmet, the, the assumption has been kind of that J.C. Latham was the second-team right tackle. That was not the case on Saturday. I don't know if that's because Damian George was just closer to the coach uh, and they threw him out there because it was a quick thing, or if that was planned, if Damian George, now that he's healthy, um, a lot of us didn't know that he was not healthy going into the Miami game. But he was back last week, and he was the tackle that came in for uh, Chris Owens when he had to go off the field and not J.C. Latham. And we saw Latham later on, and I thought Latham actually played pretty well um, going back and, and kind of running through things a second time. But what were your thoughts on, you know, Damian George maybe being the guy instead of J.C. Latham? Yeah, that was uh... – you know, I was looking for that as soon as Chris Owens' helmet came off. I was looking for J.C. Latham to run out there, and instead it was it was Damian George. You know, I, I, I'm sure it's not his nickname. I call him the Coke. He looks like a Coke machine with human feet. I mean, <laughs> Damian George is an enormous human being. Um, and then when Latham did came in, did come in, you know, I saw him at guard. You know, um, you know, late in the game when when, when they went to garbage time. So. I think it's fair going forward that Damian George is the number two right tackle. But sometimes, and I wanted to talk about this at quarterback too, sometimes the guy who is number two 
is number two in the game, but not what I would call number two in the season. And by that, I'll, I'll transition a quarterback just because I think it's a good example. This is just my opinion. No one from the inside has told me this, uh, but I will ask around soon because to, to verify best I can. But I get the impression uh, from practice and then, and then in the games that Paul Tyson is the number two quarterback on any depth chart you'll find. And Paul Tyson will be the second quarterback to come into games. But if something happened with Bryce, if Bryce, you know, got injured or uh, or, or sick or or or, you know, woke up drunk in the portal or something. If Bryce is gone for the season, uh, I think Jalen Milrow would be the quarterback and not not Paul Tyson. I think Paul Tyson is sort of the number two quarterback in name only. Uh, but if something happened to Bryce and he couldn't play uh, for, for, you know, multiple games of the rest of the season, I think it would be Milrow. So back to right tackle, maybe Damian George is number two, but if, but if they decide to, to, to move Chris Owens out of there and Chris Owens is just not going to be the right tackle anymore, I still think it would be more likely Latham than George. But if Damian gets in the game and plays well, and by the way, I watched the one play he was in. I, I watched Damian George and not the ball. Uh, he did He did get his guy blocked. Uh, maybe if George plays well, he changes that. But, hey, the good news is it's clear to me because Damian George is a young player that the coaches are high on him, and, and that that's good to know. It's, it's good to hear. And, you know, next we'll kind of move on uh, because I think it's pretty important to talk about, you know, first of all, Christopher Allen uh, last week goes down with, you know, what we think is going to be a season-ending knee injury. Uh, Drew Sanders gets the start for him. I wanted to talk about Drew Sanders' performance. And then, you know, I think it kind of surprised some people that Josh Job and Jalen Armour Davis, both those guys ended up missing the game. And I don't know if you know something that I don't, but I haven't really heard what that has been. Um, you got, uh, you know, it could be something, you know, related to an injury. It could be something, you know, you never know when it's COVID related. You never know when it's, you know, something from a discipline standpoint. I haven't really heard anything. My guess would be that they were just maybe banged up. And it was, you know, Nick Saban doesn't really hold out starters. He doesn't take the approach, even if it is Mercer, to say, you know, he, he takes the same approach. If you can play against if, – if it was LSU week and you can play and you would be playing against LSU – then you're going to be playing against Mercer if you're even if you're banged up. Uh, at least that's what he did with Tua Tungvaloa with the Citadel a couple of years ago. You know, when you start painting the picture that, you know, a guy technically, if this was a better opponent, he would be playing. But since it's a, a not a great opponent, we're going to let him sit out. You're sending the message to your team that they don't have to take that opponent seriously, which goes completely against everything that the process has been built on. So for me, I, you know, I think it was – the fact that both guys were held out, I don't think it was really precautionary, but at the same time, I don't really have anything to go off of, and maybe you do, and I'll let you talk about that here in a second. But you got Kool-Aid McKinstry who stepped up in one of those starting spots. You had Marcus Banks. I really thought that both guys played pretty darn well, and I understand that it's Mercer, and the Mercer passing game is not the the strong suit of that offense, but – you know, McKinstry and Marcus Banks, both those two guys were able to haul in an interception. I thought from a consistency standpoint, Marcus Banks was a little bit more consistent, which is to be expected. He's, you know, a veteran guy in comparison to Kool-Aid, who's still kind of learning the nuances of playing at Alabama, the nuances of playing the position on a high level on the college level. Um, but, you know, I think that what this did do is, you know, if you're getting Josh Job and Jalen Armour Davis back this week, now you're looking at it and you're saying, well, we were able to get two more guys, some valuable game in-game live reps, and that should be able to help the depth. And especially if you're planning on, you know, eventually trying to work Kool-Aid McKinstry into a role, you know, in week one, you only got four snaps when, when things really mattered. Um, but, you know, now that he's gotten the start and he played pretty well, maybe he's earned the, tr uh, the trust of the coaching staff. And moving forward, you know, with Jalen Armour Davis, who's played extremely well, and, and Josh Job is Josh Job. I don't think anybody thinks he's going to get benched at any point. Um, but you've built some depth there, and maybe we start seeing more of a rotation. So talk about not only, you know, if you want to talk about the injuries, you know, because also, you know, Will, Will Anderson Jr. ends up going down. We think he's, you know, he could possibly be back for this weekend for Florida, but we don't know that. Um, you know, definitively at this point. But talk about, you know, Drew Sanders and his performance. Talk about Kool-Aid and Marcus Banks and some of those guys and just what were your thoughts on both cornerback and edge? 
Well, first of all, Drew Sanders was great. I, I would even say, you know, if we had to pick one guy, to me, Drew Sanders was the MVP of the game. And not just because he filled in for Chris Allen uh, and did well. I thought Drew Sanders was literally the most disruptive defender on the field uh, for Alabama the, the whole game long. Uh, I love how Drew made plays in coverage. He made plays laterally. Uh, he got pressure on the quarterback at times. I don't think he recorded a sack, but he, he had pressures. He made tackles. He made big hits. Uh, Drew is, is, is a great player. He's very good. It's not that Alabama won't miss Chris Allen. Of course Alabama will miss Chris Allen. Uh, but Drew is very, very good, and he showed how versatile his, uh, his skill set is. So I, I thought Drew was great. Kool-Aid and Marcus Banks filling in for, for, the starting, for the starting corners, I think did fantastic because it was a first start for both. And like you said, Clint, Mercer's passing attack isn't like what Alabama will see like from an Ole Miss, uh, but, but Mercer is, uh, you know, it was their first start and, and they both get interceptions. Uh, there were some busts in the secondary. It didn't appear that they were Marcus or Kool-Aid's fault, which, which certainly beat the odds considering their, their, uh, their, their youth. Uh, like I said, Marcus a little bit older guy, but it, it was still his first start. In terms of what was wrong with Jalen and Josh Job, to my knowledge, they're literally just banged up and, and should be healthy. I think they, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think they have serious injuries. I even think the COVID uh, rumor makes some level of sense, particularly uh, contact tracing as opposed to positive tests. It wouldn't be shocking because I'll, I'll say this, if, if Jalen Armour Davis and Josh Job uh, were either contact traced out or had COVID, this is what you would hear from the program and from Coach Saban. They wouldn't say it was COVID, and they would just be kept very quiet. So if it was COVID, this is exactly how, how, how it would be presented uh, to the fans and the public. So maybe it is, but regardless of that, it doesn't really matter. I, I think in the sense, I, I believe both are ready to go against Florida, and, and you'll need the veteran, the veteran presence that they provide. And now, now at least there will be some trust if they have to go to Kool-Aid or Marcus Banks, because we've seen them play a whole 60-minute game. So uh, overall, like I said, the first half, the defense was fantastic. The second half, there was just a couple of busts that caused the touchdowns and caused the yardage totals to go up for Mercer. And that's just a little disappointing because to see busts in the secondary, because yes, that we were young at corner in this game, but the safeties are not young. And Jordan Battle is, is normally just ice cold, no mistakes back there. Uh, and he's the traffic cop. I mean, you know, uh, I, I don't know that anything was his fault. I think Daniel Wright blew the coverage on the second touchdown based on Coach Saban's reaction <laughs> uh, that Daniel Wright's not soon to forget, I'm sure. Uh, that was just a little disappointing that, uh, that they would have bust. But, hey, you know, one thing, let, let's remember this real quickly. Uh, Mercer's never going to line up and whip you, but, uh, but they're not dummies. They're not dummies. They can confuse you just as easily as LSU can confuse you or Tennessee or Auburn or anyone you play, uh, it doesn't matter the talent level. They could come up with something creative that we have not seen on film or expected. And so to some extent, maybe you're just as likely to bust against a Mercer as you are anyone else. All they got to do is show you something you don't expect. College kids are easily confused and, uh, and, and maybe don't react on the fly as well as, uh, as veterans do. So uh, maybe we shouldn't be surprised when there's bus against Mercer. When we should be surprised is when they line up and just whoop your butt because that, that's not something we should ever see out of an FCS school against an Alabama. Right. And, you know, I'm right there with you. As far as the, the reason for the two starters' absence, um, the, the COVID makes sense, but – it's speculation. I mean, neither of us have anything to go off of, but just the reaction. It, I don't know what else there would be where Nick Saban would not kind of reveal, you know, because he always says, oh, so-and-so's got an ankle issue. Oh, so-and-so's got, you know, uh, a knee tweaked a little bit or he's dealing with a shoulder issue or whatever. He's always willing to throw out a little nugget to kind of guide people. He never reveals the severity, never reveals much more than that, but he's mentioned absolutely nothing from an injury standpoint regarding Josh Job or Jalen Armour Davis, and he also has not even mentioned the fact he hadn't even used the phrase, or at least I don't think that he has, they're banged up. Um, you know, they're, they're always – he's a little bit banged up. Um, he None of that has been used. 
I don't think it's anything disciplinary, and I think that it would be odd if it was just because they both play the same position and the chances of that are slim. COVID contact tracing, that makes the most sense. So I think you're onto something there, but that would just be strictly an assumption. I don't think people should run with that and just automatically say that's what's going on. As far as Drew Sanders, completely agree. Very surprising to me in, in the way that he performed. I knew he was a, a pretty good guy as far as dropping into coverage, uh, you know, because he played some a lot of off-ball linebacker in high school. He played some defense. Defensive end, played tight end, wide receiver, wildcat quarterback, running back. The guy literally did everything, but playing off ball linebacker, you have to drop in coverage. So it, you know, it's not like in high school he was on the line of scrimmage every single play and he was getting after the quarterback. And, you know, that happens with a lot of these star pass rushers. For him, he has the experience and you can really see how that's benefiting him you know, stepping into that starting role or just even getting any sort of snaps in games against the run. I thought he was solid as far as being a pass rusher. It's surprising to me. I thought that was his biggest issue or his biggest area of the, where he needed to improve, and I was surprised at how well he did getting after the quarterback. Now, he didn't have, you know, uh, any sort of game-changing plays, but I just thought that he was a lot more, you know, his hand usage was solid, you know, strong at the point of attack with it when it was against the run. I just think his game overall is going to fit in Alabama's defense extremely well, and um, so that was great to see. Chris Braswell, got to be honest, he comes in for Will Anderson – uh, he has some work to do as far as his run uh, defense. You know, I think that if you're going against a strong running team like Florida, who has the number one rushing offense in the country right now, a lot of that has to do with their quarterback play, um, both their quarterbacks who have rushed for a lot of their yardage. But at the same time, you know, Damian Pierce and, and, and Malik Davis, both those guys are averaging, you know, north of six yards per carry. And Damian Pierce is averaging close to eight yards per carry. Um, and so they have a strong run game. And Alabama can't afford to have Chris Braswell out there as an every down defender if he's not going to play the run well. And I haven't, maybe he's capable. I just haven't seen it, whether it be in the A Day game, whether it be in the limited snaps that I saw um, you know, against Miami, which he didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to stop the run. But then, you know, when he goes in and, and we see him a little bit against Mercer, just think that he's right now still a situational pass rusher. And if that means that when you're going in your nickel defense or whatever, you're, you know, having Drew Sanders out there as, as the lone outside linebacker and you got Justin Aboigby or Byron Young or, or LeBron Ray or somebody else at that other defensive end spot being an early down run defender. And then if you want to rotate in Chris Braswell in obvious passing situations, I think that's a, a, a fine combination. And, and they've done that sort of thing in the past when they've had certain guys who had limitations. And what's interesting is that you know, you have Alabama defensively, especially they have specialists all over the place, guys who do certain things really well, and they're able to play those guys in those situations. Um, I'll be curious to see how Florida's offense ends up attacking that. You know, you don't have an every down defender. The thing about Will Anderson is he's every bit as impactful against the run as he is against the pass. And, and so you've got Drew Sanders. You know, that's where I think Florida can take advantage if Chris Braswell is forced into an every down role. And I don't know if that's going to be the case. I don't, maybe, you know, Will Anderson Jr. ends up playing, you know, on Saturday. And now, granted, if he does, he's probably not going to be 100%. I'll be curious to see, you know, what his limitations are, if there are any, but that's something to certainly monitor. But if you look at this Alabama defense at all three levels, it just impressive stuff. The defensive line, Fidarian Mathis is a lot more of an impactful interior pass rusher than I gave him credit for going into the season. I think Byron Young continues to make plays and is very underrated. And when, when you talk about the interior defensive lineman for Alabama, you saw Tim Smith get involved early, a lot earlier against Mercer in the rotation than you did against Miami. I thought he did some good things, both against the run and, you know, providing some, some uh, interior pressure as well. So, you know, you got that going on. You got a deep stable of, of you know, a deep rotation of defensive linemen. You still have talent at the outside linebacker position. And if, as long as Will Anderson is healthy, you know, the losses of Quandarius Robinson from a depth standpoint and, you know, with uh, Christopher Allen, I still think they're going to be fine at, at outside linebacker, but your two inside linebackers. I thought that with Mercer's offense, it provided a lot more opportunities for those two guys to make plays, and they certainly took advantage of it. Both those guys can get sideline to sideline. They can both be off-ball blitzers. They can, you know, they're. I wouldn't say they're great in coverage, but I think they're, you know, decent in coverage. I think that's one of the areas of Alabama's defense that certain teams 
are going to be able to, or they're at least going to try to exploit is attacking the middle of the defense. And I think you're going to get a lot of that from Ole Miss uh, here in a few weeks, but you know, getting sideline to sideline, running, hitting, tackling, you know, the whole kit and caboodle with, with those guys at a, a off ball linebacker, they had a great performance. I kept up with them quite a bit and I was very impressed with both. I think their, their skill sets are so complimentary and not from the sense that one does something well and the other one doesn't. It's the fact that you don't know how both are going to be utilized because they can both stack and shed blocks. So, you, you know, you're talking about Mike will, you know, typically the will is going to be scraping into, into the A gaps and kind of free flowing and making plays that way. And the, the Mike is going to be stacking and shedding and playing the strong side of run. Both those guys can do that. Both those guys can run freely, you know, um, you know, get to the sidelines if they need to. So very impressed with them. And then the back half of the defense, um, you know, like we got uh, a look at some of those depth corners. I think Alabama's got some depth at cornerback uh, that they're proving right now. The safety play, you got DeMarco Helms back. Um, talk a little bit about the Malachi Moore-Brian Branch situation because I find that pretty interesting as well. Yeah, uh it really, I think this summer would have just been a huge shock to find out that really Malachi Moore has lost his job. But that's, but that's basically what's happening. And I don't, I, I'll rephrase that because it's not really, I don't think, what happened. I think Brian Branch was just too good. I think Brian Branch proved in fall camp and, and, and going into the Miami game that Brian Branch is just too good not to have on the field. So really what's happened is in terms of the starting lineup, Helms is back, so he starts at safety alongside Jordan Battle, and that's your two starting safeties. Well, Alabama's in nickel on 70% of snaps. Last year, when Alabama was in nickel, that fifth guy was Malachi Moore coming in at star. But now it's Brian Branch. Uh, Brian Branch is, is the star when they're in nickel, and that's the majority of snaps. And it's going to be this weekend, too. Florida plays a lot of what we call 11 personnel, one, one back and one tight end. That means they almost always have three receivers on the field, which means Alabama will be a nickel all that time. When the other team has three receivers, Alabama is in their, their nickel personnel package. So that means Brian Branch now at star, not Malachi. Malachi comes in when Alabama is in dime. When you go to six defensive backs, Malachi comes on the field and he plays star, his old position, and Brian Branch moves to the middle of the field and plays the money spot. So I know that gets kind of, complicated for for some folks but but that's literally what's happened and it's a big big deal because malachi i felt and most people did i'm sure you agree clint last year malachi performed at a near all sec level at that uh, nickel spot malachi not just it wasn't just that he was good for a true freshman he was good period i mean this was one of the better nickel defenders in the whole conference if not the best and He's lost out. He basically lost his job, not because he went backwards, most likely. Uh, it's just because Brian Branch has just been too good. And when you're a nickel 70% of the time, they didn't want Brian Branch on the bench 70% of the time. But, uh, but for now, Malachi is. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge surprise if you'd have told us in May or June that uh, Malachi wasn't going to be at the uh, star position for Alabama. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And, you know, the the, the best ability is availability. And, you know, through no fault of his own, you can't help injuries, but down the stretch last year he gets hurt. Uh, Malachi Moore does, and he misses the college football playoff. Brian Branch steps up, and, you know, he wasn't perfect, but I thought that he showed a lot of talent and ability. And, you know, from if I'm not mistaken, Malachi missed a lot of the offseason, correct? He wasn't available in the spring. Um, so now you've got – you're working your way through spring, you're working your way through summer, and he's trying to get back on the field. He, Brian Branch had plenty of opportunities to take that starting job. And it's like you said – that's not a reflection of Malachi Moore's talent. And he's still going to be very involved in this Alabama defense. I mean, they, at, at certain points, I would, I mean, it's not like he's going to completely go away and he's only going to play, you know, 30% of the snaps. I think there's situations where he gets on the field as a safety. I think there's, you know, situations where he, he subs in for, for Brian Branch at star, even when you're going the nick, when you don't have that money on the field. Um, but, you know, overall, I think that 
Alabama in the secondary is extremely deep and extremely uh, talented. And so that's why I say at all three levels, they're still figuring some things out and there's still some work that needs to be done. But, you know, you got Jalen Moody as a third off ball linebacker who's got experience. He comes in, he makes plays. I mean, it's just, I mean, he makes plays on special teams as well. But when he comes in on defense, uh, when he's needed, he, he, he provides quality play as a rotational backup depth linebacker. And so they're deep at every spot. They're talented at every spot. This defense is for real, and they're not going to be perfect. I, it's like I've continued to reiterate, this is a different college football world than we were living in five years ago or ten years ago. There's going to be games, and it could be coming up fairly soon. You know, against uh, you know maybe against Florida, I doubt it, just from their limitations right now as far as their passing game is concerned. But you're talking about Ole Miss. Um, you know, LSU can cause you some issues when they're you know playing well as far as their passing game. You know, Auburn's passing game, who knows how good or not good they are. I don't know. I mean, they, they look fantastic, but there's only so much that you can take away from their first two opponents. So, um, but Ole Miss is going to be the big one in Mississippi State with their passing game with Will Rogers and Jaden Wadley and, and those guys like, um, over there in Starkville. So there are going to be times where, the, you know, fans are going to get frustrated with Pete Golding. They're going to get frustrated with not being able to get off the field. It, this is not going to be a shutdown defense for the entirety of the season, but what we were looking for, at least for what I was looking for from this defense going in, they have absolutely provided that. And so that's been very encouraging. We'll switch to the offensive side of the football. And let's, I mean, you know, you could talk about Trey Sanders and the fact that he got involved a little bit earlier, um, you know, in this game, I think he was the third back in there ahead of Roy Dell Williams, but you know, really the, what I want to talk about is Jojo Earl and, and the rotation that he's been able to provide. I, I mean, I, he's going to, you can just already tell he's going to be a player who continues to get more and more involved in the offensive game plans. And he's going to be a problem and a headache for opposing defenses. So whether it be from him, his, uh, you know, it was night and day different when he came in for Slade Bolden, as far as being a punt returner, he's a lot more electric if you're going to win that job, you're going to hang on to that job for Slade Bolden. You have to be reliable. That's the only advantage that you have over jo JoJo Earl is the fact that you're a re reliable presence back there returning punts. But from a punt returning standpoint and from a receiver standpoint, seven catches for 85 yards, both of those two uh, statistics led the team. Talk a little bit about Alabama's receivers. And then also throw in Jamison Williams, who had that rough drop. Shows big playability, but, you know, the consistency is huge. And against Mercer, that type of play, as far as that key drop, because I think with his his long speed, it's possible that he scores on that play if he catches the football. Uh, you know, depends on angles, depends on I, – I don't know the speed of those Mercer guys who are, you know, in a position um, to maybe make the play. But it was going to be a huge gain regardless, but it could have potentially scored. And against, you know, Ole Miss or, you know, against, you know, Florida this weekend in the Swamp, you you miss out on that play. It could make or break your team and make a huge difference in the game. So talk about the receivers in general and what you thought about those guys. Yeah, you know, Jamison Williams is new to us. We haven't seen him play a lot. And uh, the drop is extremely disappointing. It's one of the things that really – uh, as a fan, uh, I get frustrated with uh, because so much has to go right on a pass play and then to actually deliver the ball to the receiver and he just drops it uh, is so infuriating because everything else had to go right uh, from the throw to the protection to the snap and everything. Think of all that has to go right before you get to that point. But one thing about Jamison's drop, uh, I don't, I don't want to be like super negative about this, but I bet that's not the last one we see from him, even though we don't know his game very well. But if you think about it, this kid is fast, fast, fast. I mean, all SEC receivers can run. But Jamison has plus speed. He has the type of speed that at the NFL Combine does things like, you know, get you drafted in the first round. I mean, that, that's how speedy he is. So when you factor in that Jamison is a legitimate 4-4 or better guy on the field, he must not be great at some other things. Because if you're great at everything – and you run a 4-4, you are the first wide receiver taken in the draft. You're never leaving Ohio State because you're the number one receiver there. And I know what Ohio State's got in Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. They're, they're fantastic players. But I'm just saying, obviously, Jamison has holes in his game because with his speed, if he was so good with his hands and his route running and his blocking, he would just simply be the best receiver in college football. And we know that he's not that. We know that he's good. 
are very good, but the best receiver in college football, maybe not. So that leads me to believe that uh, we might see some more drops from him. And that's just something that you have to take along with the big plays uh, because there's going to be more big plays like we saw against Miami uh, with Jamison and his speed, but there may also be some drops. So maybe that's something we ought to, to some extent, get used to as frustrating as it is. Now, Jojo Earl, I loved the catch and traffic because, again, we talk about all these – we just talked about with Jamison, there's all these boxes to check, right? We know Jojo's fast. We know he is. And we know he's shifty or he wouldn't be the, a punt returner. But what we saw there on that catch and traffic was ball skills and toughness. And with a, a little guy like he is, that toughness was, was really good to see. The contested catches are what make a great receiver. You don't have to be great to catch balls that hit you in the numbers and stride. You don't have to be a special athlete to catch a football. But you do have to be a special athlete to catch a football in traffic against other premium athletes. JoJo Earl, to me, really flashed on that one play, what makes him special. He's going to have special traits. He's going to be compared to Jalen Waddell a lot because they're similarly sized. They play the same position. They're going to return punts. They're both from Texas. Uh, he's going to get compared to Waddle a lot. That's not really fair because I don't know that even anyone in the NFL, other than maybe Tyreek Hill, has Jalen Waddle's burst. I don't think JoJo's got that, as most people who aren't stars in the Avenger movies. Uh, those are the only people that have burst like Jalen Waddle. Uh, but JoJo's going to be an extremely good player. And I will say, Clint, by the end of the year, JoJo is probably going to be the number one playmaker on the offense. I can't disagree with that. Um, and, and the more that you watch him make plays, I mean, even, you know, I think on his first catch, uh, just the explosion that he had getting to the defender and the defender made the tackle and you could tell he was ready to make a move. Defender did a great job of, of securing the tackle and you got to give him credit for that. But just for me, from the time that he caught the football to the time that he got to the defender who was trying to tackle him, I mean, it was like it was a flash. Um, and you can just see the explosiveness that he can provide the offense. And the fact that you talk about him going up and showing the toughness and, and the contested catch, you know, ability, that's very Jalen Waddle-esque too. Because even though Jalen Waddle was undersized, he displayed that same kind of willingness to do that. And he showed that at multiple points throughout his career at Alabama. So I completely agree with you. Um, the similarities, you know, is he uh, the spitting image of Jalen Waddle? No, but there are enough similarities where anybody that's trying to make that comparison um, you know, I, I, I can't really fault you for doing that. As far as the, you know, before we get off, there's a couple of things that I wanted to hit on. You touched on it a little bit already, and that's the quarterback play or the quarterback rotation. I completely agree with you based off of that point that you made earlier. I think that in Nick Saban said, Paul Tyson is the number two quarterback. Jalen Milrow is the, the developmental guy who is, you know, showing progress. They're giving him as many opportunities as possible when the opportunities present themselves to get him ready to go from being the developmental guy to being the number two guy. And that's what they're looking for. If, if that were to happen today, um, you know, maybe it would be Paul Tyson. But there's a reason Paul Tyson comes in for a, a series, essentially. Doesn't look that great, by the way. But then they immediately go to Jalen Milrow and he plays for the rest of the game. They're wanting to get him as many reps as possible in the event of an injury to uh, Bryce Young to be able to open up a quarterback competition. And if he's barely gotten any live in-game reps throughout the entire season, the fact that he doesn't have the veteran experience that a Paul Tyson does going into his third year, I mean, Tyson in that scenario would clearly be the, the, the quarterback who would step up in the event of a Bryce Young injury. If they can close that gap from a, a – experience standpoint, especially in-game experience, that's a lot more valuable than anything that you would probably see in practice. If he's getting a lot more reps than uh, Paul Tyson, why are you giving him those reps? And then you're going to turn around and hand the job to Paul Tyson if something happens to Bryce Young. You've done nothing to help prepare Tyson for, you know, taking over those duties when you had – because we saw it, you know, when it was Jalen Hurts, you were seeing a ton of Tua Tungvaloa. You could tell in the way that they were trying to execute game plans when he was in the game, they were preparing him not just for handing the football off when he come in late. They wanted him to be ready to take over the starting job if something happened or if he ended up just beating out Jalen Hurts or if something happened to Jalen Hurts with his playing style and the physical style that he ran the ball with uh, 
back when he was he was at Alabama. You know, you're going to continue to see Jalen Milrow get involved in that competition uh, for the number two job, and we'll just kind of see how it plays out. But I completely agree with everything you said as far as the structure and the way things are set up. And, you know, you got to look at what – it's not necessarily what Nick Saban says, it's what he does. And, and all signs based off of what they're doing right now is pointing in that direction. And the last one that I wanted to get your thoughts on very quickly, I know we were kind of going over on time. We always do this. We're both very long-winded people, uh, but I, I can't help it. I mean, I could literally hop off this podcast and talk football with you for another six hours. No problem. I'd get in trouble for not doing the rest of my job and the daily tasks that, that it takes. But the last one that I wanted to, to talk to you about was Jaleel Billingsley. Because, you know, I think a lot of people thought, okay, you sent your message against Miami. He's ready to go. Uh, get him get him involved in the game plan in week two. With Cameron Latou having the kind of week one performance that he had, I think, you know, nobody expected him, to, Jalil, to step back up and take back over the starting tight end job. But they just thought he'd get a lot more involved. He did get involved a lot earlier. He was still listed as the fourth tight end on the depth chart. But – and you did see – you saw Kendall Randolph. You saw, you know – um Robbie out is it outs? How do you say his last name? I I think Oats. I think it's Oost. I got to be honest, man. And like it's one of those things I've written it a hundred times, and it did take a little getting used to as far as spelling that. Where did the Z and the T and the S that that structure? Oost. I'm pretty sure Oost. I was okay. somebody that would know for sure, and, and like an idiot, I forgot. But I, I think it's Oost. Well, you know, he got involved and in play. You know, he, he lined up at fullback on that goal on play. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you saw a lot of tight ends, but Jaleel Billingsley got put into the game in the second quarter, didn't do a whole lot, neither did Cameron Latou, to be fair. So do you think he's trending back in the direction of becoming that dynamic one-two punch at tight end with Cameron Latou? Or do you think that he's kind of falling by the wayside and it could be a situation where he just, you know, he, he, he's done enough to, to fall out of the good graces of the coaching staff and he's just not going to be able to recover from it? Uh, I'm, I'm – I can be pretty optimistic about these things. I, I think it's trending back in the direction of what they wanted to do back in the spring. I think in the spring, once they saw that Cam Latou had developed into what he's become, you know, which in essence is an NFL tight end, uh, I, I think they kind of dreamed up in the spring and summer uh, ways to attack a defense with two tight ends uh, and that there would be a lot of two tight end sets. I think that's and I think some of the evidence of that, Clint, is even when Billingsley was basically out for the Miami game and not playing with the first team, we still saw some two tight end sets. They just used Kendall Randolph and Major Tennyson uh, instead of Billingsley. Now, of course, they're they're kind of blocker first guys, and a lot of that was blocking situations. But my point is, I think all spring and summer there was a plan that the Alabama offense would feature a lot of two tight end sets because it was a very good possibility that it would prove out that Alabama's best 11 included Latu and Billingsley. And, and I, I think they made those plans, and then Billingsley ruined them by acting like a 19-year-old all, all fall. And, uh, and, and, not, and, and very rarely in Nick Saban's tenure has he publicly chastised a player like he has Billingsley on a couple of occasions and I'm not I'm not talking about a sideline rants I'm talking about to the media when it was extremely clear who he was talking about so but Billingsley played early against Mercer and to me that's a sign that he's at least got one foot out of the doghouse now and at some point we're going to spring this two tight end concept on someone that may not be prepared for it it might even be something to look for this weekend against Florida uh, in these first two games, we haven't showed, I think, what we really plan on doing with Latu and Billingsley. It won't be something major. It won't be something that, that uh, you know, grand, grandma in the upper deck goes, wow, look at that. I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be something shocking that's obvious. But I think in terms of adjustments, I think in terms of showing alignments and motions that Florida hasn't seen on tape in the Miami and Mercer game, uh, I think that I think that might happen even this weekend, and and, and it can be a weapon uh, with Latu and Billingsley both in the pass route. So I think it's something to look for coming up. And and hey, if it doesn't, uh, and Billingsley never gets gets his head screwed on straight, uh, Alabama clearly has other options at tight end, and we we can live without him. 
I'll say this. Just imagine being an opposing defensive coordinator right now because you don't know when the the Billingsley factor is going to come back into play. You don't know entirely that it's going to come back into play, but you just assume at some point that it is. And so you're preparing – you're having to prepare for a guy that you have no idea what his snap share and target distribution and all that stuff is going to look like on any particular Saturday. And it's possible that you spend the whole week preparing for a two tight end set with Cameron Latou and Jaleel Billingsley and what that's going to look like and the problems that that can cause your defense just to have Jim, uh, J, uh, Jaleel Billingsley standing on the sidelines doing hardly anything. So it's just, it's funny because you combine that potential tight end set. You've got the, your deep threat guy with Jamison Williams, who, yeah, we talked about the drops, but the speed is real. The big playability, you know, downfield is real. You got, you know, John Mechie who can win the short, intermediate, deep. You know, he can win at all three levels of the field. JoJo Earl's showing tons of explosiveness um, and ability, you know, yards after catch, getting the football in his hands, you know, quickly and letting him make plays. You got Slade Bolden who can win on the short to intermediate stuff, who can be kind of a reliable target. This Alabama offense, it hadn't – everything hadn't clicked, you know, perfectly yet. But man, the 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 potential firepower, potential of this offense, um, is every bit you know the ceiling is every bit as high as it was last year with Mac Jones and all those first round receivers, and the year before with Tua Tagovailoa and all those guys. You have that type of ability, especially in your passing game, that Alabama has had the last few years. It's just got to all come together. The offensive line's got to gel and um, you know become a lot more consistent to make sure Bryce Young has the time because. Early on in the game against Mercer, you could tell they were wanting to – they thought they would have the time to let some long-developing route concepts and, and plays develop and let Bryce Young hit those, and it was not working. And then you started seeing the – you know, I think – whether it was, you know, Nick Saban, whether it was Bill O'Brien, hey, we need to start getting the football out of Bryce's hands, give this defense a little bit more respect than maybe we were giving them going in. And that's where things started to click because you got those guys who can make plays – on the uh, you know, you know, on jet sweeps, on screens, on bubbles, on a bunch of stuff, you know, get the football in their hands, let it, let them make plays after the catch. So you know, yeah, I completely agree with you that uh, Alabama's in good shape with its offense. I think Jaleel Billingsley continues to work his way back into the good graces of the coaching staff, and I think that once that happens, it's going to add another wrinkle to what is potentially becoming a very potent Alabama offense. So. Jimmy, I appreciate you hopping on here with me. This is always a ton of fun. Um, you know, like I said, we get the mailbag coming tomorrow. If you haven't already gotten your question in, get it in to me at Clint R. Lamb. You can hit it up, you know, Jimmy at QB underscore country. You can hit the BCS on three uh, or the Bama on three is the, the, the Twitter handle at Bama on three. If you want to send it there. <clears throat> Send you know any of that stuff that you want to as far as your questions. We'll get those answered tomorrow. We'll do some more Florida stuff. There's already a few Florida-related questions, so we'll kind of make that not only a mailbag but kind of a Florida preview because I think that will allow us to dive a lot more into it. And then, you know, a couple things, and I'll continue to reiterate it, this after every episode or in every episode. If you haven't already, go, you know, follow, like, subscribe to the Bama on 3 show. Leave a five-star review. We're looking for plenty of those, as many as we could possibly get. We want to give you guys the content that you want, not what we want to give you, but what you want. So if you have a suggestion and things you want us to cover, if you want us to bring you know a certain guests on, we'll certainly try to make that happen. If you want us to you know cover certain things, if we're not putting a focus on, on areas that you would like us to talk about, this show is for you guys. It's not for us. So you know, go leave those five-star reviews. Um, you know, ask your questions like follow subscribe and then also go sign up for you know on three plus it's ten dollars for the entire first year that's less than a dollar a month and then the content that jimmy is giving you on the bcs alabama message boards that alone is worth one trip to mcdonald's if you got absolutely nothing else out of it that right there would be absolutely worth it. But you're also getting Nikki's recruiting nuggets. She's doing a fantastic job on the recruiting trail. She's got some great things coming for you guys as far as video content is concerned. 
uh, talking to some recruits and, and I'm telling you, you're going to absolutely love what she's got coming. I don't want to reveal too much. That's her thing. And I want to give her the ability to, to share that with you guys, but you need to be ready for that. Cause it's going to be big time stuff. And then, you know, you also get some of my plus content as well. Live game reaction stuff, following the game, kind of quick hitting thoughts and things like that. So, Definitely go sign up for On3 Plus right now. It's only $10 for the entire first year. Jimmy, thank you so much for hopping on here with me, man. I always appreciate having you. Uh, Looking forward to tomorrow's mailbag. Absolutely. Good speaking to you, brother. And looking forward to talking to you about the mailbag tomorrow. So once again, thank you guys for listening. This is the Bama On3 Show, and I'm your host, Clint Lamb. Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's $200 to use on point spreads Money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050-427 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE. NY or text HOPE NY in New York.